the Passover and the days of unleavened bread. Our excitement is building as we recognize they are coming soon and they form the, let's say, the structure of the calendar year for us in the Church of God. They teach us God's plan of salvation for all mankind and they have so much meaning that we learn and we rehearse every year and we learn more every year that we keep them. As was mentioned this year, uh, Passover will be Thursday evening, April 21st. Uh, Passover is for baptized members only, an acknowledgement that we have accepted Jesus Christ as our personal Savior and been baptized in faith. The night to be observed will be observed Friday evening, April 22nd. And as was mentioned, we'll be getting together in small groups to observe this. Many of you uh, probably have your plans already or are making plans. And then, of course, the first day of Unleavened Bread, April 23rd. So that's what we're looking forward to. But if you have a calendar on your wall, you probably have noticed that the calendar says something different. What day does the calendar on your wall or your pocket calendar or in your, I don't know, in your iPad or your computer, what day does it say Passover is? Probably it says Saturday, April 23rd. Saturday, April 23rd. Or maybe beginning Friday, April 22nd at sundown, but the first day of Passover being Saturday, April 23rd. Meaning the Jews today will be keeping Passover one day later than the church of God. Why is that? Are we early? Are they late? Why the difference? Put another way, the Jews combine Passover with the first day of unleavened bread. <clears throat> so they keep Passover beginning Nisan 15, which also, of course, is the first day of unleavened bread. Whereas the Church of God keeps Passover beginning Nisan 14, according to the, the sacred calendar. So the question, <clears throat> why, do we keep, why do we keep these days separate? Why do we keep Passover on Nisan 14 and the Feast of Unleavened Bread beginning Nisan 15? When the Jews combine them, and does it matter? Why do we do it? First of all, let's get a feel for uh, what the Jews did even in the time of Christ. Let's turn over to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, and we'll just get a quick scan of <clears throat> to confirm that this is the way the predominant group of Jews was keeping Passover even in the time of Christ almost 2,000 years ago. John 19 and verse 31, breaking into the story, this, of course, was after Christ had been crucified, after he had hung on the stake, the cross, and finally died. Verse 31, Therefore, because it was the preparation day, 
that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. That Sabbath was a high day. In other words, Jesus Christ and the thieves were crucified on the day just before the first day of unleavened bread. That's what a high day is, a holy day. In this case, the first day of unleavened bread. Now let's notice, notice another scripture. John chapter 19 and verse 12. John chapter 19 and verse 12. Just look across the page probably. It says verse 12. From then on Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out, sat down in the dungeon seat in the place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour. Same day earlier in the day, and it says that this was the preparation day for the Jews' Passover. In other words, there was something coming up the next day, something beginning that evening that that day they were preparing for, what they were calling generically um, the Passover. Again, we're talking about the Jews mixing the Passover and the first day of unleavened bread. Go back another, another chapter, John chapter 18 and verse 28. John 18, verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. In other words, the Jews had not yet, many of them had not yet eaten the Passover. It was still something that was going to take place. And yet we know that Christ had already taken the Passover the night before. We'll see that in a little while. So it again brings up the question, why do we keep these two days separate? When clearly the Jews were mixing the Passover, the observance of the Passover, the eating of the Passover, with the beginning of the first day of unleavened bread. Are there specific reasons, and does it matter? Is it just an academic argument? Let's examine that today in the sermon for a little while. There are some specific reasons, and it does matter. Let's go back to the story of the Exodus to begin. Back in Exodus chapter chapter 12. We won't read the whole story of the exodus of what was happening, but we understand the children of Israel were enslaved in Egypt. They had found themselves in an impossible situation, a no-win situation. They were in bondage, in hard bondage, by a nation that was not, at that time, was, was not even letting them be a free people within their own country within Egypt. But that was all going to change. 
And we pick up the story. When we pick up the story, God had poured out nine plagues on Egypt. And this powerful nation was being devastated. It was about to collapse with the last plague. But there was one more to come, and that, of course, was the death of the firstborn. God was revealing himself to the Egyptians. And he gave Moses, and Moses gave them some instructions to follow in a way he was going to deliver them. Notice in Exodus 12. In verse 1, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month every man shall take for himself a lamb. According to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. So, of course, they were going to to sacrifice it. They were going to eat it. So he was saying it, 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 it should be enough for one household. If you have a small household, then join two together, but enough for one lamb. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now, we have the advantage of being living about 3,400 years later, looking back and understanding what this was talking about, what this was a type of, a lamb without blemish. John 1, verse 24, you can just make a note of it, talks about how John the Baptist referred to Christ as the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We can see back that this was, this sacrifice in Egypt was ultimately going to refer to Christ, be a type of Christ. Revelation 13, 8 talks about how the Lamb has a book of life. <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> Talks about how the, the first beast in Revelation 13 uh, will compel all on earth to worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So, so the plan was put in motion for Jesus Christ to give his life. And that plan was put in motion from the very beginning. This was how God was going to redeem mankind from sin. So when we read in Exodus 12, this is, this is what we're really reading about. It's a type of Christ. Going back to uh, verse 6. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. Now this is a whole subject unto itself. What does this word twilight mean? What does it come from? It's a phrase translated twilight means literally between the evenings. It's a disputed phrase. <clears throat> depending on who you ask, what scholars you you go to, a lot of disagreement about its meaning. 
but we in the church of God take it as the new King James translators worded at twilight or dusk or that time between sundown and dark. For various reasons, we'll touch on some of them in this sermon, but um, perhaps uh, not, not all reasons. But most Jews do not. Most Jews interpret this differently, and because of the way they interpret it, they miss on out on some tremendous meanings that the church of God is blessed to understand. The Jews interpret it as happening the next day, which puts Passover and the first day of unleavened bread at the same time. But why does it matter? Why does it matter? Again, is it just a debate for uh, commentators to debate? Let's get back to the story. Exodus 12. He told them they should kill it at twilight and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lentil of the houses where they shall eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh of that the, eat the flesh on that night. Roasted in fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs shall they eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall not let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus shall you eat it, with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So this is what they were to do. They were to take some of the blood, put it on the lentils, put it on the posts of the door, and eat it in haste. And this was the first introduction of the word Passover. He says, so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Now, why was it called the Passover? Good question. Let's go to the next verse. Verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Where do we get the, the word Passover? He said, I will pass over you when I see the blood. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. What does Passover mean? This really is not complicated. It means Passover. Passover. One more time. Passover. Right? What does it mean? It, it talks about its meaning the time when God passed over the Israelites. When he was going to punish the Egyptians and he was going to bring judgment on that society. And unless there was a special designation, unless there was a special marker for God's people, they would also suffer that same plague. Those who are firstborn, they would be destroyed. So what is Passover about? It's about deliverance. It's about being delivered from death. 
It's about being saved from punishment, saved from destruction, saved from judgment through blood. Notice what it is not about. It is not yet about coming out of Egypt. That was to happen later. The next day. Actually, the next night. But before they came out of Egypt, they first had to be delivered from death. Two very significant events. Passover represented deliverance from judgment. Unleavened bread represented coming out of Egypt, going on, going forward in a new life. Going back to the story, Exodus chapter 12 and verse 21. Notice, he said, Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families. Kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop. Dip it in the blood that's in the basin and strike the lentil and the two doorposts with the blood that's in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. Now, again, this also is debated by scholars. What do they mean by morning? Well, the word means daybreak, and there are other places we could go to talk about that. But they were to stay in their house until light, until the next morning. Why? For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door. And not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. And that's exactly what happened. We read in verse 29, it came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who is in the dungeon and the firstborn of livestock. So Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. There was a great cry in Egypt. There was not a house where there was not one dead. This was a pivotal event. This was a defining moment in the history of Israel. A defining moment that they would remember for generations and hundreds and thousands of years. And we're even reading it today. The time when God delivered the Israelites from Destruction, the Passover. Now, the rest of the story, we find that then they, uh, it talks about in verse 37, they're journeying from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides children. Now, by the way, again, some, some try to say that, well, they left after midnight. They all left their homes in the dead of night around 1 or 2 a.m., about three million people in the dead of night. They, they took their flocks, their herds, their chickens, their goats, their kids, all of their belongings, and left in the dead of night. Now, <clears throat> you tell me, you know, it, this was not like just pulling up a U-Haul trailer to your, your uh, front door. This was a very complicated maneuver. Can you imagine... In about two or three hours, even even with our modern conveniences, two or three million people trying to gather 
in one place in Charlotte in the dead of night. No, it happened the next day. It happened during the daylight hours. <clears throat> they, were, they left their homes in the morning, and then they traveled, they gathered, they gathered then in verse 40, the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years on the very same day, it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night of solemn observance to the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. What we find is they gathered the next day and then they left Egypt the next evening. And the, the wording even describes it that way. Verse 42. It is a night of solemn observance to the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So two very distinct events. One was the Passover and one was leaving Egypt. One was being protected from destruction and one was going forward, moving forward, leaving that nation. Very key points. <clears throat> Just for your notes, you can write Deuteronomy chapter 16 and verse 1. talks about how the Israelites came out of Egypt by night. They came out of Egypt by night. Well, how could they leave Egypt by night if they were told to stay in their homes the Passover night unless they, they left Egypt the following night? And that's the point. <clears throat> Two absolutely distinct events. One was the Passover, beginning of the 14th. The next was leaving Egypt the beginning of the 15th. Let's very quickly look at uh, Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 5. And we'll find a couple more examples of this that shows us these were two distinct events. Again, why do we keep the Passover on the 14th and the first day of unleavened bread on the 15th when the Jews combine it in one day? Well, we read right here. Leviticus chapter 23 and verse for these are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. On the 14th day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. The 14th is defined as the Passover. The 15th is defined as as the first day of unleavened bread. We also find that in Numbers chapter 28 and verse 16. Numbers 28 and verse 16. Passover is correlated with the 14th. Unleavened bread is correlated with the 15th. <clears throat> over and over again. Numbers 28 and verse 16, it says... On the 14th day of the first month is the Passover of the Lord. And on the 15th day of this month is the feast. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. <clears throat> so, again, the scholars debate these things and, 
and there are some who who put them together on the same day. But Scripture shows us these are two distinct events. One happened on the 14th, one happened on the 15th. But there's another reason that is even more important for our purposes. Let's turn to Matthew 26. Matthew chapter 26. And here we have the example of Christ. How do we know when to keep the Passover? We look at when did Christ keep the Passover? Notice Matthew chapter 26 and verse Verse 17, now on the first of unleavened bread, it's not talking about the first day of the feast of unleavened bread. Clearly, you you notice some of the words are in italics, just meaning the first of the general days when they were getting the um, leaven out of their homes. Now on the first of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying to him, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. Now, brethren, is there any doubt that Christ, what day Christ was talking about? Is there any doubt that he was confused about what this meal was? Was this the Lord's Supper? Was this the Last Supper? Or did he refer to it directly as the Passover? Three times. Pretty clear. Let's go over to uh, Mark chapter 14. Just to get a... Just to get a glimpse here as well, how Mark described it. Mark chapter 14 and verse 12. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go to prepare that you may eat the Passover? Now again, there's a huge dispute about, well, did Christ really eat the Passover, or was this just a supper? Was it a pre-Passover? Well, I mean, what did he say? What was he talking about? What language was he using? And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him wherever he goes in. Say to the master of the house, the teacher says, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? That's Five times so far we've seen the word Passover in relation to the preparation of this meal in Matthew and Mark. Then he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared there, make ready for us. So his disciples went out and came into the city, found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. That's six. Keep counting. Let's go over to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. It says, In the mouth of two or three witnesses, something is established. We are seeing that there are three 
witnesses that witness to the fact that Christ did not just keep a last supper or or um, or just an ordinary meal, but he actually kept a Passover. Luke chapter 22 and verse Verse 7, then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. The same language that we read in the other two. Uh, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Verse 13, so they went and found it just as he had said to them and they prepared the Passover. Now, when the hour had come, verse 14. He sat down in the twelve apostles with them, and he said, With fervent desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Pretty clear. Ten times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Passover is mentioned. Jesus Christ kept the Passover. And we keep it following his example. Why do we keep Passover distinct from the night to be observed and the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Because of what Christ did. By the way, down through history, we understand that we find people called quarto decimens. What does quarto decimen mean? It means 14ers. Those who have to do with the 14. Well, why would they be called 14ers? Why was the disciple of John Polycarp? Why did he have what did he have to do with the 14th? What did Polycrates have to do with the 14th? What did some Christians in Scotland have to do in the 7th even up to the 7th century AD have to do with the 14th day of the first month? Ivor Fletcher brings that out in his book Check it out. I didn't note the the page. You'll have to find it. There were quarto decimens for hundreds of years called 14ers. In other words, they were keeping the Passover on the 14th. Paulicians as well in southern France and the borders of Spain were observing Passover on the 14th day. So we continue that as the example has been set for us. Okay, so let's take it one step further. Is, again, this just an academic exercise, or does it mean something for us personally? Does it mean for us something spiritually? Does it matter? Do we learn something very deep that we might miss if Passover and the day, the first day of unleavened bread were combined into the same day. There are three parts of our Passover service, the wine, the bread, and the foot washing. And again, when we as baptized members will observe this service, at the beginning of the 14th day of the sacred calendar of the first month, the Nisan month, we'll observe three very important Parts of the service. I'm going to talk about them in the remaining time we have. We normally have the the foot washing first, then the breaking of the bread and eating of the bread, and then the wine. I'm going to take them in a little bit different order. 
We're going to talk about the wine first. What did the wine represent? Notice in Luke 22 and verse 17, you're already there. So just look right down in verse 17. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 20. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. The new covenant in my blood shed for you. So Christ was introducing a new symbol. Wine representing his blood shed for mankind. The beginning of the new covenant. This was something different. They already had eaten the Passover lamb. They already had eaten unleavened bread and bitter herbs. He was adding something. What was he instituting? He was explaining that he was going to give his blood for mankind. He was going to shed his blood for mankind. He was talking about what would happen the next day when he gave his life. Of course, they didn't yet understand it, but they would when the events unfolded. Now think about it. This also was to be a pivotal event, a historical event, just like the defining moment of the Passover in Egypt. For Israel's history, this Christ shedding his blood is the defining moment for all humanity having the opportunity to have their sins forgiven. Notice in... 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 17. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 17. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, From your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world. You notice the direct correlation with Passover, that Jesus Christ was willing to give his blood, the precious blood of God who became flesh. So that our death penalty might be dropped. So that we might have that blood over our sins, over our doorposts, so to speak. So that we might be saved from destruction. We might be saved from the death penalty which we have earned through our sins. Now why is this important? The Holy Day season does not begin with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We don't go straight into the Days of Unleavened Bread. The Days of Unleavened Bread, which represent coming out of Egypt, which represent growing 
which represent overcoming and changing and feeding on Christ and becoming a different creation. You notice we don't start there. We start with our sins being covered by the blood of Christ. And why do we understand that? Because they're separate. Because Passover comes before the first day of unleavened bread. And if you mix the two, would we also have our understanding mixed up? We can't go out of Egypt. We can't come out of this world. We can't grow and overcome and and do all the exciting things that we're going to learn on the first day of unleavened bread through Christ living in us until we have the death penalty removed and that is through Passover. Is this just an academic exercise when we talk about the need to keep both Passover and unleavened bread distinct? Absolutely not. Without Passover, we have no hope. Without Passover, we cannot move forward. Without Passover, it doesn't matter how much we grow, we still have to pay for the sins of the past. Have you ever been charged with a speeding ticket? And you show up and you talk to the judge and you explain how you're going to be different, you're going to never speed again, you're going to take classes, you're going to be a good citizen. And he says, that's all great, but you've still got to pay the fine, right? Without Passover, our sins are not passed over. Remember, what's the definition of Passover? Passing over. Not yet coming out of Egypt. Not yet coming out of the world. That's different. That's a different event, and it's a different meaning. Passover gives us hope. Passover gives us hope. And this world needs hope. We need hope, don't we? And before God opened our minds and our understanding to his plan and to his incredible opportunity that he's giving all mankind, we were without hope. But Passover is the first step to having hope. Gives us hope for the future. It doesn't guarantee what we do with our future, but it gives us hope that we have a future. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 19. Notice. Colossians chapter 1 and verse, verse 19. It says, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated, verse 21, and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. What if we skipped over Passover and went right into unleavened bread? Think it through. We'd be trying to grow and improve and feed on Christ 
and change, but we still would be carrying the death penalty over our heads. We wouldn't really be at peace with God. We wouldn't be at peace with ourselves. We wouldn't be at peace with others. And yet that's what the whole world is trying to do, if you think about it. In the mainstream world, skipping over the fact of dying to the self. Many will be keeping Easter tomorrow. Focusing on the resurrection of Christ, which is very important. Without his resurrection, we have no life. Without him being raised, we don't have hope of being raised. But brethren, we, unless we keep the Passover, we don't have that death penalty removed. People want life, but they don't want to die to the self. And in order to have life, we've got to die to the self first. You know, it's interesting, even in some other languages, what is the word translated Easter? Pasch, Pascha, French, Italian, some other languages. There there is a hint, there is a relationship, there is... There is a memory of the Passover back there in the distant memory in other languages in referring to Easter. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16. The point is we can't grow. We can't take part in what the Days of Unleavened Bread talk about unless we first really have the death penalty removed. What did Paul say in verse 20? I have been crucified with Christ. I am dead to my past. I have allowed the old man to go under the water and to die. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. It should be of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What a tremendous hope we have because God is giving us the opportunity to die to the self. Young people, if you're contemplating baptism or others who are older who (coughs) have not yet been baptized, you will come to a point in your life when you realize all your efforts are worthless. You can't make yourself good enough to be baptized. You can't work enough righteousness to be baptized. You'll come to that realization. Yes, you need fruits of repentance. Yes, you can't be robbing banks and stealing cars and, you know... That sort of thing, and expect to come to baptism. We have to repent. We have to have a commitment to change. But it's not by our own efforts. Mr. Dawson gave a sermonette last week talking about that. It's not a matter of just being good enough and getting better and better and better, and then I'm ready for baptism. That's not it. So don't be frustrated if you feel like, wow, I I can't get good enough for baptism. You know what? If you're at that point... 
That's a good thing. You're beginning to figure out you can't do it on your own. All of us who have been baptized, as we come to another beginning of the Holy Day season, we're not going to enter into a new covenant, another covenant. We've already done that once. He dies. We accept him as our personal Savior. It happens once. But every year as we keep the Passover, we, we renew our commitment to it. And we renew that the fact that it's good to be reminded where we came from, who we are, and even where we've fallen short in the last year. Not to be depressed or discouraged by it, but to be full of faith and hope because Jesus Christ died for our sins. And that's a tremendous truth that we learn by keeping Passover before we keep the first day of unleavened bread. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood. Again, the same language that we're reading about in Exodus about the Passover through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. What a tremendous blessing, brethren, that we have. That when we keep the Passover, we are expressing our faith that Christ died for us. Following his example. Another symbol, of course, we talk about at the Passover service is the bread, the body of Christ. Notice uh, back to Luke chapter 22 and verse 19. Luke 22 and verse 19. It says, He took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. <clears throat> Jesus voluntarily gave his body to be beaten, to be broken, to be abused by those wicked men. He took the beating that we deserved. He gave his body for us. This has powerful meaning. <clears throat> Let's turn over to Hebrews chapter 10 in verse 1. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1. Again, during the Passover, we will partake of the bread, the unleavened bread, representing Christ's broken body. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually Year by year, make those who approach perfect. We are under a different, different covenant. We are under a different, <clears throat> a different covenant where He actually lives in us. So we can grow. We can be different. 
Verse 2, for then would they not have ceased to be offered, for the worshippers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. <clears throat> then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written to me to do your will, O God. Mr. Dumas was talking about coming to Passover with a humble attitude. And Jesus Christ humbled himself and gave up his body to be broken and to be beaten for us. Again, if we go straight to the Feast of Unleavened Bread and we don't keep the Passover, we would understand we need to feed on Christ. We would understand we need to have him living in us. We would understand we need to feed on his word, which is his mind in print, that we can grow through him living in us. But that's not the first step. We first must go through Passover when we understand that there was an offering for sin. Notice he says, verse, verse 8, Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offering for sin, you did not desire nor had pleasure in them. Verse 9, <clears throat> verse nine. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We take the bread on Passover expressing faith in the broken body of Jesus Christ. That he took the beatings for us. He took what we deserve. He took what we earned through our sins. And that's very profound. And if we wouldn't keep those separate, we may not understand that to the same extent. It's not just about growing. It's not just about developing. It's not just about changing. It's about dying. It's about having the body of Jesus Christ accepted as a sacrifice on our behalf. It's about us dying to the self. Is this just an academic exercise? Or is there tremendous meaning in these two feast days being separate? Passover 14, first day of unleavened bread 15. <clears throat> Notice in John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Jesus Christ talked a lot about his being the bread from heaven. How he came down from heaven. How, how their fathers ate manna in the wilderness. But that wasn't really the, the ultimately the, the bread from heaven that was intended. There was a spiritual <clears throat> element that was going to come. But notice, and just again to get the, the sense of, of what he was willing to do as God, 
yet coming down in the flesh. John chapter 6 and verse 38, he said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He came to humble himself. He came to do something which was very, very difficult. Emptying himself, as we heard from Dr. Meredith last week. And this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. That all ultimately who are, who are wanting to have their sins forgiven, and who are wanting to be different, and who are wanting to grow, and wanting to do it his way, will be a part of his family. Ultimately. This is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. And I'll raise him up at the last day. Drop down to verse 47. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life, for I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate man in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. We understand when we're eating the unleavened bread during the days of unleavened bread that Christ must live his life in us, right? That we cannot grow of and by ourselves. That we have to feed on his word. And every day as we're going to be eating unleavened bread, we're thinking about that. And we're thinking about getting sin out of our life. But if the death penalty is still hanging over our head, getting sin out of our life, we're still dead. Aren't we? Unless that death penalty has been paid. So we need the Passover. And notice what he talks about. He says... If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. He said, I'm going to lay my flesh down, my life down. I'm going to spill my blood and I'm going to give up my body. When we keep the Passover, we are acknowledging that. Very profound. Again, it's a powerful lesson as we are thinking about it's not about being good enough. It's not about sort of trying to earn our way out of the sins of our past. We can't do it. We have to have them covered by blood. It's acknowledging who and what we are. Whether we're baptized or not, it's acknowledging we need help. And we cannot cleanse ourselves of and by ourselves. Let's turn over to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. If we are baptized, then we approach Passover as a reminder, as an acknowledgement of what we, the commitment we, we made and the life that we are on, the track we are on, and how we continue to need his help. We continue to, to slip up. We continue to need his sacrifice to cover our sins. 
But if we have not yet been baptized, then we're, we're, we're facing a decision at some point in our life. Are we going to die to the self? And do we recognize the need for that? <clears throat> you know, the longer we live, I think the more we understand our need for our Savior. The more we understand our weakness in the flesh. The more we understand the need every year to come to Passover. And how grateful we are that we can come to Passover and acknowledge the, the tremendous sacrifice, the tremendous gift that Jesus Christ gave us when he gave up his life. And how much, if he'd never done that, we would be dead men and dead women walking. There's another profound element having to do with the bread. <coughs> we find in uh, chapter 53 of Isaiah and verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs or sicknesses, it says in the margin, and carried our sorrows or pains. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised or crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, or the margin says, the blows that cut in, we are healed. Mr. Meredith, in his uh, recent LCN article, talked about the correlation between the stripes of Christ and our healing and how much we need to acknowledge that and, and accept that and ask for his stripes to be applied when we need healing. And that there is a tremendous meaning there as well <clears throat> when we ask to be anointed and ask to be healed. That he suffered a tremendous amount in the flesh And he understands what suffering is all about. Let's turn over to Psalm uh, 103 and verse, verse 1. Psalm 103. So what we're talking about is some very profound things that we learn through Passover. And if we didn't take that step, we would be stuck. We would be stuck. We wouldn't be able to to go any further if it hadn't been for the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> we couldn't go to the second holy day. We couldn't go to the third or the fourth. We need the first. Psalm 103 and verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases. David puts them, them together. And of course, we understand in Christ's ministry, he also talked a lot about how they go together. <clears throat> Forgiveness of sin, as well as being healed from our diseases, especially by the stripes of Christ, who redeems your life from destruction and crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercy. Verse 6, the Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. 
He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. You know, if you ever doubt that God loves you, cares for you, will do anything for you to help you, to help me to make it into his kingdom. Brethren, we must think about Passover. We must think about what he did for us. Yes, God corrects us. Yes, he allows us to have trials. He allows us to be tried and tested. But the Father gave his Son, and the Son gave his life. What more is there to prove that they love us? What more do they need to do? But sometimes we still find it hard to believe that God cares for us, especially when we're in trials. Ask him for help. Ask him for help when you doubt. And and ponder the Passover and ponder the hope that the Passover represents. Deliverance from judgment, deliverance from death, deliverance from punishment. The third element that we keep at the Passover is the foot washing. Let's turn over to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. This is, of course, what Christ instituted at, again, not his last supper, not the Lord's Supper, but the Passover. We already read ten times in the first three Gospels. It's referred to as such. Now John writes, now before the feast of the Passover, again, talking about the Jews here, there were two Passovers being kept. That's Sometimes that's confusing. When Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from the, this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He was thinking about their well-being, even at the very end. You know, we read in other places how they were still jockeying for position about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And can you imagine the weight he was feeling as he was pondering what he would have to go through over the next 24 hours, 12 hours? He loved them to the end. He was thinking about them to the end. He was thinking about those who would come after to the end. He was thinking about those who had come before and ultimately will have a chance to be in God's kingdom as well. Why? Because of the general resurrection that the Holy Days teach us. He loved them to the end. And supper being ended... Actually, the margin says supper and during supper. The devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself as if his whole lifetime had not been enough service, as if he, what he was going to do that night and the next day was not enough. 
He literally got down and he washed their feet. He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And, of course, you know the story about how he came to Simon Peter and, and <clears throat> Peter at first objected and Christ said, look, you have no part with me if I don't wash your feet. And, and Peter said, okay, I want to be a part of you. Notice something else. Later in the chapter, we find Judas Iscariot was still there. Because in verse 26, he says, It is he to whom... No, sorry, in verse 22, he says, Most assuredly, I say, one of you will betray me. So what does that mean? It means that Jesus Christ washed the feet of Judas. Can you imagine what that must have been like for Judas? They looked at each other in the eye. Judas probably did not look Jesus in the eye. And yet Christ was willing to wash his feet too. He loved them to the end. Jesus Christ is leading now the church. He, he, he is sitting at the right hand of God. He is actively moving in his work. He's going to intervene in the world. He's going to set up his kingdom on this earth. He's going to intervene powerfully very soon. But at that time, he took the spear, he took the whip, he took the blows. He served us. And he served them by washing their feet. Amazing. He said, do you know what I've done to you? In verse 12, you call me teacher and Lord and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you do these things, blessed or happy are you if you do them. So we're going to go to Passover as baptized members. Notice that we don't choose whose feet we wash. Unless you sort of jockey for position when you're in line. You know, you're looking at who's down the line and who am I going to be matched up with? Of course not. And is there anyone, we have to think about this, is there anyone in, in this room that we would not be willing to wash their feet? You know, if that's the case, we, we need to, as we heard in the sermonette, we need to humble ourselves, don't we? <clears throat> it's not by our power. It's not by our righteousness. It's not by our strength. Passover is not the time to come to God with a list of our accomplishments. With a list of, look at what I've done. But rather... To realize, without Him, we are powerless. We have hope. 
because of his sacrifice, but without it, we are nothing. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And this is why we examine ourselves. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 23. And this is why it matters that Passover and the first day of unleavened bread are separate. And that we learn the lesson of each one. And that we keep the Passover before we keep the days of unleavened bread. Because they, they, they mean two separate things. Two very distinct things. One is being saved from death. And the other is going on to perfection. And it's important we keep both in the right order. Notice what Paul wrote. Verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. What an awesome opportunity to come under the new covenant, which is Christ shedding his blood for our sins, taking our sins away, wiping clean the slate, and then living his life in us. Writing his laws in our heart. What a blessing, a tremendous privilege. And it all starts at the Passover. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He didn't mean to do it every week. He didn't mean to do it, you know, every quarter. He said, do it in remembrance of me. Do it in remembrance of what I did. As a memorial. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Till he comes, you remember what he did for you. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord with an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Does it mean that we have to work ourselves up for it? Does it mean that we have to be sort of good enough to, to, to take it? He's talking about an attitude, isn't he? He's talking about having the right attitude when we come. Verse 29, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep for... If we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. And this is the key. Isn't it easier to judge others, brethren? You know, wouldn't it be so much better if we could do Passover examination on each other? It's a whole lot easier to see, right? And a whole lot easier to, uh, to point out. How do we take the Passover worthily? There is nothing we can work up to be good enough to take it. This is the precious blood of Christ we're talking about. 
We take it worthily when we judge ourselves. We realize how much, yes, yet again, this year, we need it. Just like last year, just like the year before, just like we do every day. His shed blood to cover our sins so that we even have the opportunity to go forward, move forward. Verse 32, but when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. So we have an opportunity to recommit ourselves to the covenant we made with our God. We need to remind ourselves how much we need him, how much we need Christ. You know, he doesn't need us. God doesn't need us in that sense. He loves us. He wants us to be in His family. But He doesn't need us the way we need Him. No matter how far we've come, no matter how much we've grown, we all fall short, don't we? And we need His mercy. So we need to come to the Passover humble. We need to come to the Passover conquered. Not dejected. There's a difference. Not discouraged, not depressed, but hopeful because He saves us from our sins. We are humble and conquered and hopeful. Hebrews chapter 12. Notice Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 2 says, looking unto Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He's the start, and he will complete us. We must never forget that. We don't start with coming out of Egypt in a glorious procession, as we, as we you know, watch in the, the old movie about uh, the the Ten Commandments, how they came out of Egypt. That's not the beginning. The procession and the celebration and the excitement, that is step two. No, we start on our knees begging God for forgiveness and even the repentance comes from Him too. He, He grants us repentance. He helps us to repent. And he calls us. He starts it all. Why? So that no one can boast. That's the point. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, deserves all the glory in whatever we do, however, however far we go, however we develop, because of where we started. And how he picked us up out of the mud. All have sinned. And come short of the glory of God. The first step of salvation is so important. It's represented by the Passover. Without it, nothing else would be possible. Let's turn in conclusion to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul wrote this. During or, or, or near the time of the Days of Unleavened Bread. 
the topic he related to the time they had just been keeping. He says in verse 6, Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little, little leaven leavens a whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. He was talking about how they had been keeping the days of unleavened bread, but spiritually they were missing the mark. And he said, let your spiritual condition match the fact that you're not eating leavened bread right now. Purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Brethren, let us keep the feast. Let us keep the feast of unleavened bread. With all the excitement, all the challenge, all the celebration, all the growth, all the overcoming, all the forward progress, all of the going on to perfection that it entails. Let us keep the feast. But let us first keep the Passover. Because without the Passover, there would be no feast of unleavened bread.